Hello and welcome to my podcast, The Mongols, Chinese Emperors. This is episode 11, Red Turbans. In the last episode, the reign of the last emperor, Toghong Temer Khan, had started. I also talked about his several grand counselors and their efforts on behalf of the emperor. We also learned the Yuan dynasty was in trouble because of the fiscal problems and the growing internal disorders. Finally, I introduced you to the Red Turban rebellions. This episode will finish the series on the Yuan dynasty. In it, I will take a closer look at the red turban movements, what it was, and where it led. Finally, I will spend a little time reflecting on the Mongol domination of China and their Chinese dynasty. In the last episode, I provided a brief introduction of the red turban movements I want to start briefly at the beginning of the movement. Generally speaking, the Red Turbans were a peasant movement occurring in the middle third of the 14th century that flourished in China, especially northern China. It originally started by the followers of the White Lotus movement to resist the Mongols. The Red Turbans appeared to have begun in and around Hunan province. At that time, they were angry about the massive flooding and crop failures. Early on, the group had roots in Buddhism. It took its name from the, from the red turbans or scarves that supporters wore. There were similarities between the red turban rebellions and the Taiping rebellions that occurred in the middle of the 19th century in China. But there are also important differences in the two rebellions. The Taiping rebellion started in one place and consisted of a unified group of leaders. The red turban uprisings spread slower and much more clandestinely and was in a different provinces moving separately. There was a northern component operating out of Nanjing, China, and there was a southern component operating south of the Yangtze River. But the turbans were also a lot of other groups that were hard to distinguish from other dissident groups. Understand this, the uprisings eventually led to the end of the Yuan dynasty. Several times, the dissidents tried to foment rebellions but were fought back. Eventually, these several groups joined forces and became bigger amalgamations. They essentially came down to two large movements. The South Movement, led by Xu Xiaohui and Chen Youliang, and the Northern Movement, led by Zhu Yuanjiang. And from there, 
the movements gained momentum. By the year 1351, the red turbans had turned violent. In the year 1356, the northern faction turned on the southern faction and defeated it. They had a list of complaints against their Mongol rulers. Drought, flooding, crop failures, poor economic conditions, and resentment of being treated as low-rate serfs. Remember, under the Mongols' tiered social order, the Han Chinese, and many of those were participants in the Red Turban movements, were, the, were among the lowest tiers. That also meant they were the most burdened with taxes. It would be a mistake, however, to assume that the Yuan government was totally spent and ready to roll out of China. From the year 1350, it still had about 18 years to go, which is nearly a generation. Despite everything I've talked about, local and regional fiefdoms, the red turbans and nearly depleted national treasury, the Mongols still managed to fight back, and hard, too. The intrepid Grand Council of the Right, Tuatua, was still running the show. Determined as ever, he himself, in the year 1352, led a military campaign to Jiangsu province, to Nanjing, right at the heart of the Red Turban movement. And he led another military campaign in 1354 to a city on the Grand Canal to restore peace and control. Despite his odds, by the year 1354, Tuatua appears to have gotten the upper hand on the rebels and maybe had broken the back of the rebels. Then in 1355, Emperor Huizhong dismissed Tuatua and banished him. Why? The answers to that question have plagued historians. It is all just speculation because as far as anyone knows, the emperor never left a record of his reasons for Tuatua's dismissal his second dismissal. But there are clues. It may have nothing more to do than his five-year term was up and it was all according to the prearranged schedule that I've talked about. It is known Tuotua had had his critics and enemies as to be expected. Those persons may have gotten to the emperor and convinced him to dismiss Tuotua. Some believe Tuatua had gotten too powerful. Another reason may have been related to something far more personal to the emperor. Also, an interesting anecdote, and the reason I wanted to mention it. Tolkhon Temur Khan, at the age of 34, lived a life of semi-retirement. He was known for his dalliances with women, riding a pleasure boat, on the lake at the Imperial Palace. But he was also grooming his 15-year-old son to become the heir apparent. Tolkhon Temer, the Chinese Yuan Emperor, set up for his son a rigorous education in Chinese and many other subjects. His son had a retinue of educational tutors, said to be as many as 75 
The emperor had given his son control of a ceremonial guard and two regular army units. He also had his own palace and a consort. By the mid-1350s, the young man was conducting himself as if he was the emperor. And all of this, I'm sure, Tuatua was aware. And Tuatua allegedly loathed the idea of making the young man the heir apparent as he was directed to be by the emperor. Tuatua, however, maybe had a good reason for not making the designation. The young man was the product of a relationship between the emperor and a consort, not from the empress. That may have unqualified the young man to be the emperor. Incidentally, the consort was a Korean woman that the emperor was quite fond. The emperor's empress, a Mongolian woman, produced only one son who died in infancy. The matter took on an even greater importance in that the Mongolian society relegated Koreans to a low level, and for many Chinese, they felt particularly slighted by the concert status that it had been elevated. Nevertheless, the emperor felt the failure by Tuatua to make the heir apparent designation was a personal affront. Soon after Tuatua's dismissal, in early 1355, the designation was officially made. Perhaps Toto's removal was routine and scheduled. And if it was, it was a case of terrible timing. Once Toto was gone, the Yuan military campaigns against the rebels evaporated. The Mongols then lost their military and political initiatives. From the flames of defeat, the rebels rose from the flames like a phoenix, regrouped, and took on a new urgency. It was this new urgency that would lead to the Ming Dynasty just 13 years later. Keep in mind, the rebellions were numerous, large, and over a large area. The reality is that despite the Yuan's success against the rebels in the mid-1350s, there was not an army large enough to suppress these rebellions. The numerous insurrections caused new political and military structures that had no allegiance to the Yuan central government in Beijing. Some of these structures had both the manpower and the resources to act alone, needing no direction from Beijing. Beijing had obviously lost control of these structures. At that point, all the Yuan government could do was put its best foot forward. In numerous ways, the Yuan government itself was only a regional entity and only in control of the capitals and their vicinities. At that point, it was only the nominal national government. The local and regional structures grew large and more hostile. The local and regional structures began to make reforms from the perceived issues and problems caused by the Yuan rulers, and in the eyes of these people, were more legitimate than the national government. In time, 
The rebellions effectively cut off the lines of communication between all areas of China. Yuan paper money became worthless and its treasury was depleted. That, of course, hampered her ability to suppress the rebellions and repair the conditions that were the partial cause of the rebellions. Zhu Yuanjiang, I just mentioned him earlier in this episode, was one of the Red Turban leaders who had launched the revolts over a decade before. He finally drove the Mongols out of Beijing in the year 1368. He made himself the new emperor of the new Chinese dynasty, calling himself Emperor Hongwu, the first Ming dynasty emperor. It is claimed that the Yuan emperor, Tolkong Temer, never tried to defend to the last man his dynasty. Instead, choosing to flee Beijing with his empress and concubines, first to the summer capital at Shangdu, then to Karakoram, where he died two years later in the year 1370. For several years after their retreat to the steppes, the Mongols maintained their claim to China. Without spending too much time discussing what went wrong for the Mongols, or are there any lessons to be learned from those events, I would want to briefly illuminate and reflect on the nearly century-old Mongol-ruled Yuan dynasty in China. In the eyes of the Han Chinese, particularly the Ming dynasty that chased the Mongols out of China, the Yuan dynasty collapsed because her bureaucracy was too bloated and self-serving without strong leadership. As tempting as it is to take the Ming opinion toward the collapse as the final word, keep in mind the following points. The Yuan collapse was not pure happenstance or a coincidence. The Ming, or Han Chinese, were quite determined to reclaim their country from the foreigners, the Mongols. That was a powerful incentive. Also, while there is plenty of evidence that Tolgohon Temer seemed negligent toward his duties, you have to take everything in context. Consider the following. Throughout the 14th century, there were calamitous events everywhere in the known world. There were, during the 14th century, no fewer than 36 severe winters. That was unprecedented. Famines were recorded in every year of Tolkhon Temer Khan's reign. During his reign, epidemics and famines in China killed an estimated 35 million people. That's one out of three. From the 1320s to the end of Tolkhon Temer's reign, people in the countryside suffered frequent natural disasters, including the famines and severe winters that I mentioned. It was so cold during that time, it has become known as the Little Ice Age. And it should be noted that none of these events were ignored by the Yuan emperors. By all accounts, the Yuan rulers reacted swiftly and sufficiently. 
That then raises the question, was something more going on that caused the Yuan demise? I am not going to lay down the arguments. As I've said in my other podcasts, I let the listeners come to their own conclusions. Certainly, the Yuan dynasty was a unique situation for China. I've wondered why the Mongol rulers from Kublai Khan onward did not heed Genghis Khan's warnings about pursuing the finer things and to avoid the sedentary life. If Genghis Khan had conquered China, would he submit to Chinese values and create a Chinese dynasty like his grandson Kublai Khan had done? Or would Genghis Khan commit massive genocide, kill all native Chinese in China, and make the geography of China Mongolia? There would have been no China anymore. Things to ponder. Was the subjugation of China the poison pill for the Mongol Empire? I don't know. Many scholars have stated that the Mongols were never fully sinicized by China. However, certainly the Mongol Empire, or a great portion of itself, was sinicized. For as much as we can find discussion of how much the Mongols may or may not have changed China, often missing in these discussions is how much China changed the Mongol Empire and the Mongolians. The China effect on Mongolians and the Mongol Empire may be the real historical story coming from the occupation and control of China. In the end, it does seem the Mongols and their many positive contributions to China were swallowed into the Chinese miasma. Stuff to think about. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. <laughs>